Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right. Well, from a preacher's perspective, I don't have a very long message today, but that may not mean anything, but I'm just kind of bringing it out there. Um, I've been doing, as you know, this is week 51 now of our chronological journey through the Gospels, or the Chronological Gospels. I shortened that title at the beginning of this year. And um, trying to mesh the four Gospels together cohesively, bringing it through. Today we're going to be in the Synoptic Gospels once again, uh, beginning in Luke's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel and then finally in Matthew's Gospel. But where we end up in Matthew's Gospel when Lily and I return on vacation, we're going to pick up in Luke's Gospel in that very same place. In fact, I'm going to read view. I already have it planned. In Luke 15, we're going to be looking at Matthew 18 for our final point today, saving the lost. And this one parable is all that Matthew gives us, but in the context of the same section, Luke gives us three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, all in Luke 15. And so you can just plan on that when we come back. Um, After Mother's Day, Pastor Mark Drennenberg is going to be doing our Mother's Day message for us. So a week following that, Lord willing, I'll be back in the pulpit and we'll be looking at Luke 15. Three parables given in Luke 15. And it's the first point we'll be rehearsing our final point today, but I'm giving you a heads up. You can read Luke 15 a couple of times before I come back and kind of digest them for yourselves. But I was thinking about the title for today's message, and since I'm trying to put together a timeline, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, as we go through the events of Jesus' life at this point, that everything's like, theme-wise, is really falling into place. Like today, I was struggling with theme because we're coming from three different Gospels um, where secretarianism is forbidden or denominationalism, we could say, is forbidden by Jesus. In Luke's Gospel and then in Mark's Gospel, he talks about fire, salt, and peace and the importance of these in a Christian's life. And then in Matthew's gospel, he talks about saving the lost, the mission of Christ. And so it it really seems that there were points coming from all different directions. And for me at first, from the first few days as I looked over this, I didn't have a title. Sometimes I begin with a title and I build a message from the title. This time I pretty much built the message before I got to the title. And I kept looking at it. It's like, what would be a unifying theme that would bring this all together? And it is our pastor's pen that became that unifying theme for me that comes from Romans 
12.5 that says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We being many. many. So he's talking about uh, different stages of growth in the body of Christ in our text today. We go from uh, adult Christians to children. And he's been, over the last few weeks, talking a bit about the children as well. And so we being many, so many members, one body, and really our passages cover a wide range of issues from ministering to believers who are mature in their faith or maybe maturing in their faith to that of ministering to children. So I hope that this message will be a good reminder to us of the importance of trying to minister to the whole body of Christ And with that thought in mind, then I went back over my message and I tried to put in some current examples in each of the points, kind of tie up the teaching from the Bible with some current things going on in our church today and in our world today. And so I'm really trying to bring application to this one. And to be honest with you, uh, to throw it out there as a question mark, because I believe in the final points, Um, it is something that we will discover as we get to that final point that though our church was at one time very strong in the final point when we get to it, um, we are no longer because our church has grown up and so we've, demographically, we've changed. And I want to get us back to that place and we'll get to that in our third point. We're going to begin though In Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, where sectarianism is forbidden. And I I looked up sectarianism. It's a word that I don't don't use that word. It's in my Bible as a heading as well. I just took it from my Bible. Um, So I looked it up, other words that could go there. And denominationalism, that one fits for me because I was raised in a denomination, Calvary Chapels, we are non-denominational, but I understand that realm better than using the word sectarianism, even though I kept it there as a title. But this is also taught in Mark 9, verses 38 through 41, but we're going to take it from Luke 9, verses 49 and 50, where the disciples... John answered and said to Jesus, Luke 9, verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. So sectarianism or denominationalism are disputes that arise within a group or a religious sect that maybe... um, We find it in various denominations. We have different ways that we believe. Um, We were at a funeral yesterday at a denominational church. It's been around for a long time. And um, one of the gals afterwards came up to me and said, well, that was different. It's like, yeah, it is different because this is how they worship and uh, we worship differently. And there was one song, I couldn't find it in their hymnal. It was a song that I grew up singing. And I'm pretty sure they changed a word in the song that was troubling me. It's like, why would you change that one word? Um, I think I still need to look that up and figure it out. Uh, But yeah, it's different. And sometimes it troubles us, even like singing a song. It's like, why change that word? Uh, That's not how we grew up singing it. 
and so it can be troubling. It can be a difficult situation. But in our text, it's John comes up to Jesus and said, Jesus, there was a guy casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he's not with us. Now think about this in the context that we have come out of. Jesus at the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah was there. He came down from the mountain. The other disciples were there disputing with individuals because we come to the bottom line of this. There was a father who had a son who had a demon and he came to the disciples and asked that they would pray that the Lord would cast out this demon and the father said, your disciples could not. Now I wonder if this is even playing in. They had failed and they even asked Jesus privately later, why couldn't we do this? And as you know, Jesus said, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. They had failed, but apparently they saw someone else in the name of Jesus having success. And that usually brings division often when you see someone else in a church body having success where you've failed in that same area saying, you know, what am I, chopped liver? Why didn't it work for me? Uh, it can bring strife. This exorcist was not part of the 12, and it troubled the disciples. And so they shared with Jesus that they had forbid him to speak in the name of Jesus. Now in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, it says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. So Paul acknowledged to the Philippians that there is really a diversity of people out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some are doing it because they're coming from a place of envy and strife. They're coming from a place of, well, perhaps in the larger Calvary Chapel movements where there are some, you know, 1,000, 2,000, when we were at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, in 92 to 94, when Lily and I attended that church, um, they at that time guesstimated that the uh, membership of the church was 30,000 people. And so, yeah, that's kind of, that's huge. That's big to see three services on a Sunday morning in a sanctuary of 3,000 people, not to be able to contain the number of people who are coming and people overflowing outdoors and in uh, the gymnasium and in the fellowship hall. That's pretty amazing. And some people would look at like Pastor Chuck or maybe Raul Reese and basically say, well, I can do that. I can have such a following. And maybe they set out because of envy and strife. But there are others who do it from goodwill. They have a sincere heart when they come at it. Paul said in Philippians 1.16, get us back to this epistle, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my chains, affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense and truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And so Paul said, yeah, people, there are people out there they're preaching the gospel. He said three different things that coming from really a negative area, that they're coming from envy, and they're coming from strife, they're coming from selfish ambition. But they're preaching Christ. 
And he said, in this I will rejoice because of the name of Jesus Christ being lifted up. The other individuals, they were coming from goodwill and they were coming out of love. They were doing it with love. And so he said, whether in pretense or out of love, Christ is being preached and in this I will rejoice, I will rejoice. Years ago, and uh, I was like, very um, untimely on a response on someone who messaged me through Facebook. I like answered the message like four years later. Um, so if you message me through Facebook, it might take a while before I get to you. And I didn't do Messenger. I didn't do that. I just, I probably didn't even know the thing exists. I mean, this happened several years ago. But the individual messaged me and asked, is this the John Pinnell that was in the Christian band? He may have said Morningstar Contender. We, same band, different names, but um, I'm not sure exactly uh, which time period, except I remember the concert. And this couple had got our band to play at their church and they were in a denomination that pretty much um, it's faith plus works. That'd probably be a safe way to put it. That you're not saved by faith alone, but faith plus works. And so if you don't go through the liturgy, go through the classes, go through their system, you're not really saved. Um, but they got born again in that system and was determined at the time to stay two years and minister to the youth there. So they brought our band in as one of those opportunities. And uh, it blew me away, you know, as coming from a Baptist church, being raised Baptist. And at that time, not too many people, uh, they may have been drinking, but they didn't. From the pulpit, you didn't hear uh, Baptist preachers talking about, it's cool to drink. Today, you might hear that because we have a generation out there now that has been saying, you know, uh, it is cool to drink, and uh, we had one guy that was on staff with love in the name of Christ that through his social media page, he talked more about the uh, craft beer that he was drinking than the ministry that he was part of, and the executive director, I talked to the executive director about this, and uh, pretty much told the guy that you can't be posting this. You're posting more about beer than you are Christ. And I, I definitely know this guy was a beer lover by his post. And uh, I hope that he was also a Christ lover. So anyways, the person, I messaged him back and he said, sorry about this, I didn't even see it. And yes, this is the John Pinnell that was part of that band. And uh, he had, he'd messaged back. I kind of lost the momentum. I guess if I would have responded four years earlier, I would have got the stories. He said, we lasted two weeks. They wanted to stay two years. He said, we got attacked the following week um, after having you guys there, and we were gone within two weeks. But there are a lot of stories that came out of that concert that I would like to share with you one day. I don't know what those stories were because he never came back. I said, I'd love to hear those stories. So maybe it's not been four years yet. Maybe he'll get back to me. There could be time. Um, but... We were ministering Christ in a denomination that taught faith plus works where we presented Christ as um, 
A gift of salvation comes through grace and grace alone. And things happen there that we don't even know that took place. But there are those who do know, some out of envy, some out of strife. And so I've learned over the time that, yes, there are churches, there are differences. We are a Calvary Chapel. I, I'm not ashamed to be part of the Calvary Chapel movement. And there are reasons why I'm part of the Calvary Chapel movement. And uh, I have learned, though, over time that Christ is preached, and that's the important thing, that in any situation when Christ and the Word of God is being presented, even if it's coming from envy, out of self-ambition or strife, the individual may not know that, and the individual may get saved, that God can do a work. And so in this thing, I would say I would rejoice as well. I think it's important to find a church that is grounded solid in the Word of God, but I also realize that Christ is not limited to our different groups or church groups that we have on this earth today. So Jesus responded, Luke 9:50, Do not forbid him, for he is not against us, is on our side. And so as I said, you know, a, a few weeks ago we learned about this father whose son was had an unclean spirit. The disciples could not cast out the unclean spirit. Jesus did it for them. And they even asked why they couldn't do it. And Jesus said, this one comes out of only through prayer and fasting. But he also condemned them, saying that you of little faith, and went on to encourage them in Matthew 17, 20. We looked at this last week. Because of your unbelief, surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. So just because the others were not of their group, they were not to forbid those who were doing the work of ministry in the name of Jesus. And I fear often we fail in the same area when we see people doing the work of ministry in a different way than we're accustomed to. That was one of the uh, difficulties of the whole Calvary Chapel movement. We were birthed, our, our movement was birthed at a time when hippies were being rejected to come into the church of Christ. They were being turned away. They were being told that there was a church in Hammond, Indiana, that the moment you got saved, they had a staff barber. Philip, your hair would have to go. That's just how it would be today. They had a staff barber, and they would, they would cut your hair. You're saved. You can't have long hair. And, they would, and this was in the 90s that that was taking place, probably started earlier than that. But Calvary Chapel found a place where the hippies could be accepted, where they could come and be ministered to, and a whole movement grew out of that. So many churches ministered to others in ways that I do not agree with. Here's some of the things that I listed out. Uh, some people, uh, some churches no longer believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God in the or original manuscript. So they look at the Bible and they see verses and they, it's like we can't really know what is of God and what is not. And they pick and choose. Others believe that it only became inerrant after the King James 1611 was translated by the King James translators up to 1611, they didn't have the true word of God. And only since 1611, we've had the true word of God. Only if you're reading from the proper translation of the King James Bible, and it's got to be the right King James Bible. 
And uh, some churches focus on Jesus while others focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. Some are steeped in liturgy and tradition while others reject any form of liturgy or tradition. Some teach topically, never take their people through the Word of God, while others, like Calvary Chapel, we strive to go through the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. And I realize that many different churches in these settings, even the apostate ones, when Christ is preached, people can get saved. And when someone comes to faith, even in a church that is so far away from the Lord himself, but there's an individual within that church that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, well, then I rejoice in the salvation of others. Through the years, we have worked with other churches in this area, especially in our um, Lake Villa, Lindenhurst, Antioch area. I was talking to someone yesterday that uh, serves every week at their church, uh, helping people get groceries and stuff. They have a food pantry. And this individual serves every week there. And they need Spanish translators because that's a large part of those who are coming in. And uh, so it was suggested to someone who can speak Spanish, you should come and help on Saturdays. And it's like, that's not my church. It's like, yeah, but they need help. You can speak Spanish. You could help us all. This is the work of Christ. And so we work with other churches. We've worked with parachurches organizations like Love in the Name of Christ, or Informed Choices. And sometimes it's been organic. A need rises in the community, and we just rise up to meet this need. It may be that the body of Christ would be strengthened in unity as we come together to minister in Jesus' name. When we are with the other groups, we preach Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. So if they're not against us, Jesus said they're for us. Now, in Mark 9, 49 and 50, so only two verses again for our main text. Mark 9, 49 and 50, every one will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned or how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So fire, salt, and peace, Mark 9, verses 49 and 50. This is not in any of the other Gospels. This is something that Mark just gives us. There are similar things where Jesus talks about the importance of salt and seasoning, but this is exclusive to Mark here. And Mark had just written, and I thought about this, what caused Mark to kind of put these two verses in? He'd just written about the unquenching fire of hell, and the different type of fire that is being presented here. This, I believe, is a fire of purification. And so this really takes our minds back to uh, the Jewish sacrifice and the fire that was offered on the altar combined with the offerings. Salt was a necessary part of the sacrifice. We never um, read about, you know, and then they put the lamb down and they salted it up real good. I guess God likes savory meat with plenty of salt. That's usually the problem with our cooking today. 
a lot of times it just doesn't have the right amount of seasoning. But we never specifically read um, and then they put salt on it, but we do read of the requirements of salt. But we begin with the fire. The necessity of the fire, think, think about purification. And the fire of the altar would burn things up upon it, but fire can also purify. As it says in First Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you will have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though tested by fire, this purification process. In our passage, Jesus, the question is by the scholars, those who write the commentaries for us, they're, they're wondering, who is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? Or is he talking about both? I believe both could be the answer. If I was to favor this because of the uh, being seasoned with fire, seasoned with salt, and uh, having peace, I would say that he's talking about believers. But we do know that in Luke 3, 16 and 17, John the Baptist, talking about the coming Messiah, said that there was one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose, that he will baptize you by the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so we do find this uh, fire of purification that takes place. In fact, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 speaks about the Holy Spirit being that seal, that guarantee of our redemption. So I believe that this can be taken two different ways. It can refer to the Lord's purging and purifying work in the life of a believer, but it can also refer to the fire of judgment of hell. But as believers, being seasoned with fire should remind us of the importance of tending the fire of faith. And how do we tend the fire of faith? Well, I was reminded this is really a key passage for the Calvary Chapel movement, but not merely for the Calvary Chapel movement. A lot of different churches key in on Acts 2.42 and also 46 and 47. So Acts 2.42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in breaking of bread and in prayer. In verses 46 and 47, so daily with one another in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We can continue steadfastly. I've already mentioned it. Post-COVID era, there are a lot of people who used to attend church on a regular basis prior to the COVID pandemic that are no longer attending church. They're no longer attending church. They're not continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. They're not hearing the word of God being proclaimed um, locally in their community. I, I believe many of these people are no longer going to their churches. They're perhaps watching online. As I said, even in our small church, 
we may have more people watching us online that's actually attending in our fellowship, which blows my mind. But I think the Lord bringing a message to our local congregation is important as well. Uh, that fellowship, the breaking of bread, uh, you can't really break bread online that well. Uh, we try at times. I'll do communion. I'll, I'll let people know that we're going to be doing it. You know, go get your grape juice or your crackers and, and we'll have communion. But it doesn't quite work as well that way. But to know that the Lord is working. As unbelievers, being seasoned with fire could speak about God's coming judgment. Mark had warned about the fires of hell, that they were unquenching fires just prior to this. But I believe Mark 9, 49 and 50, if me personally looking at this, he's talking about everyone needs to be seasoned with fire. You need to be seasoned with salt, that you can have peace. And so I believe he's injected this into the passage to talk for, to believers. Now the salt there was to be used at every altar on the uh, altar, every offering on the altar that was given. Leviticus 2.13 tells us this, with the grain offering, with all your offerings, Leviticus 2.13, you shall offer salt. That's all that Leviticus says about it. But in every offering, you have to salt the offering. That's something that Lily, in every dinner, she's always getting on me. Years ago, I, you know, I have high blood pressure, so I got used to not salting as much as I used to. But uh, we had uh, dinner last night, and the chicken that Lily made, one of the first things I tasted is like, it's really salty. And she goes, yes, it is. <laughs> it was like, it's good. I'm not supposed to be eating it that way, but it was good. It was really salty. In Ezra, so salt is mentioned in Leviticus 2.13. With every offering you shall have salt. It doesn't tell how, how much. It really doesn't talk about salt from that point forward until we come after the Babylonian captivity after they began to rebuild the temple. And here, um, Artaxerxes sent a decree out, and at the end of the decree, he's, they sent a letter saying, did they really say, did um, Darius say that the Jews could rebuild their temple? Because they're rebuilding the temple here in Jerusalem. And uh, we don't think that they had... Um, permission to do this. So they sent word back to Artaxerxes and said, check the records. And Artaxerxes, he had the records checked and he said, yep. Darius did say that they could rebuild the temple. And then he said to the enemies of the Jews at that time that in Ezra 7.22, that up to 100 talents, of, they were to provide for them. So the enemies had to provide for the church. 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Mountains of salt. All the salt that they want, give them salt. I think that's pretty incredible. We don't, we don't look at it very importantly, I guess, in our day and age because we have freezers and refrigeration but salt is how they preserved and flavored. 
and uh, they did other things with it as well. But basically, any fish, any meat, it had to be preserved if it was going to last. And the way they preserved it was through salt. And so salt was a commodity and a very expensive commodity in that day and age. So Numbers 18, 19 mentions a covenant of salt that the Lord promised the offerings that were given at the temple would go to the priest, so a portion would be burned up on the altar. The remainder would go to the priest, and in Numbers 18, 19, God said, this is sealed by a covenant of salt. So it really gives us an idea of how important salt was. And so Jesus said in verse 50, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. And so we are to be salty saints. We're to be uh, the salt of the earth in Matthew 5, 13. In the message on the mountain of Beatitudes, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? And then good, it is good for nothing but thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. We are to be salt. We're to be seasoned with the salt of Christ that we can have that influence, godly influence upon others in our lives. And some people try to imagine this world without believers but I would hate to imagine our world without the preserving influence of Christ. It is Christ who brings peace. And think about these verses. I'm going to rattle off just the importance of unity and peace. As in Psalm 34:14, that we are to seek peace and to pursue it. In Psalm 133:1. It's pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. In 2 Timothy 2.22, that we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In Hebrews 12.14, we're to pursue peace with all people. And in Romans 12.18, I think this is a good point. Paul said, if it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul is not saying that we should abandon our biblical principles, truths, to strive to live peaceably with others. We're to strive to live in peace with others while maintaining our Christian values and principles. So on Thursday night, we're watching a news broadcast and... Uh, they were debating this whole transgenderism in sports. And basically, and you guys have been up on this, we have males who are claiming to be female dominating in women's sports. You do not find any issue of women claiming to be males dominating in men's sports because they couldn't. Or, um, you know... It would have to be a really poor men's sports team. There are no doubt some rare exceptions, but guys are built differently than gals. And here we have this debate going on, and this liberal newscaster agreed that this is wrong. 
But she began by saying, and I just, I wanted to go back and listen to it again, but I didn't get a chance to do that. But this is the gist of what she said. When it was her turn to speak, she said, first of all, we should all be able to call transgender people by the pronouns of their choice. So even before we talk about the whole sport issue, you can use those pronouns. And one of the other guys said immediately, no, no, and then went on to say, that would mean that I'm participating in a lie. He's like, I'm not going to use it. And so they went at it a little bit, but they all, each held their ground. So t- statistically, about four in 10 U.S. adults, 38%, say that a greater acceptance of people who are transgender is generally good for our society. By While 32% say it is bad, 29% say it's neither good or bad. So we're on the small side of this now. The percentage in this survey, now there's a stronger percentage, though it's not by much, but it's a stronger percentage saying that this is good and acceptable. And then it breaks down between Republicans and Democrats in this party. But by using preferred pronouns, What is the lie that we would be participating in? That in the beginning, God created them, male and female. In the beginning, he created them. Now, in Romans 1, 28 through 32, all of Romans 1 really talks about the breakdown of society, I believe, that we're living in now. But Paul saw it in his day as well. But he said this, and this is why we have the breakdown. They did not, Romans 1, 28, retain God in their knowledge. So God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting, to be filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undis undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And here's the part that brought me to this verse. Verse 32, Romans 1, 32. Think about this. This is that participating in problem. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You know better You know what the judgment of God says about these things, but you approve those things as well. That means you are participating in the lie. You're practicing with them. But we are to be different. We're to be seasoned with fire and salt that we might find peace. And finally, Matthew 18, 10 through 14. Uh, I'll briefly look at this today because we're going to come back to this in a few weeks from Luke's gospel, chapter 15. But he says in verses 10 and 11, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven his angels always see my face, the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So in Matthew 18, take the whole context of the passage We begin with the disciples disputing about who's the greatest. And then Jesus took a child and he sat him in the midst of the group. 
And he put emphasis on the child saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you have to be like this little child here. And Jesus warned his disciples of the danger then of offending a child who believes in him by pointing out the dangers of God's future judgment to those who would harm a child. And now Jesus teaches his disciples about the danger of despising here in Luke 18.10. Those, make, take heed, make sure you don't despise one of these little ones. Why? Because their angel always sees the face of my Father in heaven. We might think, we might say he's just a child. Her opinion doesn't matter. Jesus reminds us that their guardian angel sees the face of God. Psalm 104.4 says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. So God makes his ministers, his angels spirits. In Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? We have such thing. The Bible talks about it. We use the term guardian angels. I don't think a lot about that in my life, but scripture makes it clear that the angels see the face of God. We can't despise them here because their angel is seeing the face of the Father in, in heaven. But he stresses on this whole thing, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Paul understood this in 1 Timothy 1, 15. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. The Lord saved me. He made a point of that. Jesus is concerned not only with saving adults, but the children as well, because it's his mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And so he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the 99, go to the mountains to seek the one strain that he should find it? Surely I say to you, he rejoices more over than the sheep, over the, that one sheep than the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, is it not the will of your father who is in heaven that when one of these little ones should perish, even so, it is not the will of your father. That's better. I said, is it not? I made it a question. It's a statement. Read it right, John. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he uses this as example. We'll come back to this from Luke 15 in our next message that I present. We have Pastor Kevin and Pastor Mark Drunenberg uh, the next two weeks. But we should be concerned with children. And so I was thinking about this, thinking about the importance of the well-being of children in our community today, and it seems like our children are under attack. A statistic speaks about childhood conversion, saying that, in the reading, I'm quoting, childhood conversion is the most normal way people come to Christ. No matter who does the survey, one fact is overwhelming. Once a person reaches adulthood, accepting Christ becomes increasingly rare. Evangelism is most effective in childhood and teenage years. And so they went on to have these statistics. Two-thirds of Christians come to faith before the age of 18. 
43% come to Christ before the age of 12, and less than one quarter of current believers came to Christ after the age of 21. And so they have this thing they call the 414 window from the ages of four years old to 14 years old, that this is the uh, window where most people, 63% of people, accept Jesus Christ as their Savior from the ages of 4 to 14. So the 414 window. In 2004, Barna Group indicated that nearly half of all Americans who accepted Christ as their Savior did so before they reached the age of 13, 43%. And that of two... That of two out of three born-again Christians, 64% made a commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. And 98%, so this is a survey from 2004, but 98% of all evangelicals said they came to Christ before the age of 30. In other words... We need to get them while they're young. And thankfully, God's not concerned about statistics, but statistics, statistics are important to give us a, a really a good gauge of what's going on in our world. If you want to get, change the course of a child's life for the better or for the worse, do so when they're young. Introduce them to Christ. You can change their life for the better for the rest of their life. But right now we have people who are after our children while they're young and they're trying to get them younger and younger and younger because they want to not only change the course of our country, but this world by grabbing a hold of our youth at an early age. The mission of Jesus Christ, though, is to seek and to save that which is lost. So many members, one body, we've seen a full spectrum from uh, the disciples condemning a person because he was speaking in the name, doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and they forbid him. And Jesus said, don't do that. If he's for us, he's not against us. We learned about being seasoned, the importance of being seasoned with fire, salt, that we might have peace in this world. And finally, the importance of saving the lost. The mission of Jesus Christ is to seek and to save that which is lost. And we need to be part of that mission. And church, I just want to challenge us. This 414 window for a small church, I used to brag about this small church saying that it was probably the most effective ministry that we do as a church together. And then all of our children from 4 to 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, they've all grown up. Some of them have uh, celebrated, you know, birthdays in their 30s and 40s. And uh, it's not coming back. We're not like renewing that window. And that needs to be a target area of ministry. So how are we going to get there? I'm going to leave you with that to pray about that as I will be praying about that over the next few weeks as well. And so, Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that we would get there, that we would not only see young people come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether 4 to 18, or even uh, that 2% 
of older people who accept Christ. Lord, we want to see you do a work. We pray that you would do a work. Work in our hearts, even this hour, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.